Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So here we are, uh, our second sermon in the series of Revelation, and today we're going to be talking about the King. We're going to be talking about Jesus. And um, I know we all have different pictures in our minds when we think of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'd like you to close your eyes right now and think of Jesus. So what picture comes into your mind? How do you picture Jesus in your mind when you pray, when you spend time with him? All right, open your eyes now. Uh, we are going to, um, uh, there are a number of different uh, ideas and ways that Jesus has been depicted in time. Uh, picture up at the top, a mosaic probably from the second century, one of the early depictions of Jesus. Uh, we have very traditional um, kind of uh, religious picture of Jesus. Those of you who are uh, from a Catholic background or had family that was in a Catholic background, you remember this kind of depiction of Jesus. Uh, This one here, this is called Solomon's Head of Christ, uh, kind of the traditional Jesus. He was painted in the 1940s. We had one hanging at the top of our steps in our house growing up. And um, that is kind of a very traditional look of Jesus. Then this picture hung in my room. This is Richard Hook's depiction of Jesus, otherwise known as Surfer Jesus. And uh, you kind of look at him. He does have that 1970s Southern Cal kind of vibe going on, you know. Um, but that that's kind of the way I picture Jesus when I was a child. Uh, this is uh, Jonathan Romy, who is the the chosen Jesus, right, from the television series. And uh, But today, we're going to really be thinking about the risen, exalted King Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. All right. Um, That is the Jesus that we're going to think about. And that is the Jesus that is described for us today by John. Our picture, our passage gives us one of the greatest pictures of Jesus, especially in his risen, glorified state. And uh, we're going to look at it um, from three different lenses in reality. Um, the, the passage breaks into three kind of sections, and we're going to walk through it together. Let's begin with the ambassador of the king the ambassador of the king. And uh, I I use this word ambassador because John, uh, the apostle, is brought up into heaven. And he enters into the throne room of God. How awesome is that? Can you imagine what that was like? He's standing in the very throne room of God. And there he comes out with a message from God. Now, I want you to think many times we watch these movies, you know, um, and if it's a kind of a political drama, there's uh, a, a, if the, the United States is at war or in some kind of a crisis with a foreign state, what does the president of the United States do? 
first thing he does is he calls the ambassador into the Oval Office. And you see the Russian ambassador come into the Oval Office. And the Oval Office, as we know, was built in a way to intimidate foreign heads of state. That's the whole purpose of the Oval Office. And so in walks this ambassador, and he is given a message to take back to his people from the President of the United States. And this is exactly what happens with John. He's given a message, but it's not a message of warning or intimidation. It is indeed a message of blessing. And uh, so let's look at it. This is the greeting from the triune God. It says, grace and peace to you from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before the, his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you notice here, we have all members of the Trinity represented in this passage. God the Father is called he who is and was and who is to come. He is the eternal almighty God seated on his throne. Wow. It's really cool. This particular a statement, this phrase that's used to describe God the Father is repeated again in verse 8, and it acts like bookends to tie this greeting and this message from God um, that is given to John there in the throne room. Next we see it is from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, most scholars agree that this is probably speaking of the seven fold spirit of the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit who has like a multi-dimensional kind of uh, picture here uh, that is given to us. If we look in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it says it gives us these seven um, components of the Spirit. He is known as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And then finally, we have Jesus. And Jesus is mentioned last because Jesus is the focus of what is about to occur and what is about to be spoken of in this, in this case. And so Jesus is mentioned last, and he is called the faithful witness. In what way is Jesus a faithful witness? Well, he is the one who reveals to us the Father. Look at what John himself said in the prologue, in the beginning section of his gospel. In John chapter 1, he said, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You see, no one has ever seen God but we know God because we've seen Jesus Christ. Amen? Because we have experienced Jesus and because Jesus came into our world through the incarnation, through his birth as a man and lived among us, we can know God because Jesus is the faithful witness of who God is. All right, so now let's go back to our passage in Revelation. It goes on to say that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first to come back from the dead. He has conquered death and the grave. 
He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, this is significant because these people, the early Christian church was beginning at this point, the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, to experience persecution. Um, it was breaking out all over in different places in the Roman Empire. And so this book of Revelation is especially written to those who are experiencing this persecution and tribulation. And to know that Jesus is in control, that he is greater than all of the kings of the earth, is an incredible comfort, isn't it? And even as we look at our own political situation and all the craziness that's beginning to erupt in our world, China, Russia, what's going on in the Middle East, all of these things, we can trust that God is the king of kings, that Jesus is Lord over all the lords of the earth. Amen? Amen. So at this point, John breaks out in a doxology, which is a kind of almost a hymn of worship to Jesus. And he says, to him who loved us, Jesus loves us. Amen. We learned this from the time we're little. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It's the very foundation of our faith. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus because Jesus loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us from the slavery of sin and set us free to be, fallen, to be alive, no longer subject to our fallen nature. Finally, he has elevated us Look at what he said. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. We are now a kingdom and priests. All of us are priests. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest in the biblical sense? Well, priests in the Old Testament, priests were the mediators between the people and God. And we are now called into a place of being mediators between the world that is living in darkness and introducing them to God. That is our priestly function. We are to be intercessors as priests prayed for the people. So we are to pray for the world and to intercede for them, stand in the gap for those that we know that are living in darkness, that do not know the Lord, that are in need of him. We are also worshipers. Priests are worshipers. They are the ones who lead worship, and God has called us to worship Him, to gather together and to worship Him because our worship is a testimony to the world of who Jesus is. And so it's so important that we gather together and that we worship the Lord. And finally, priests have access. If you ever look at the temple, the temple is a series of boundaries that people cannot enter into the presence of God, but the priests have access into the very presence of God, into the most interchambers of God, and we have been given access into the presence of God. To him be glory and power forever and ever. The final portion of this message that John brings out of the throne room is uh, two witnesses. They're two biblical witnesses. You know, in the Old Testament, it says that everything must be established by two witnesses. If you're going to accuse someone of murder or of stealing your goat 
or whatever it may be. You have to have two witnesses that establish this thing when you bring that person to the court of law. And so the New Testament writers use this idea and all of the doctrine of our faith is established with witnesses from the Old Testament. And so here, John is doing like Paul has done and others. He is establishing what he's saying. He's anchoring this vision that he has of Jesus Christ. He's anchoring it in the Old Testament with two different witnesses. The first witness is Daniel, and the second witness is Zechariah. And so I want us to really focus in on the Daniel passage, which comes from, look, he is coming in the clouds. I want us to read this together, and as I read this, I want you to think about the connections between the details. You've heard the passage read to us by Curtis and Michelle, and now we're going to focus in on these connections with Daniel. It says, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I love that name for God, the Ancient of Days. And his clothing was as white as snow. And the hair of his head was white like wool. I want you to remember that. And his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. And a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. And then he goes on to say, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, this is a watershed important and very perplexing to the look there's the ancient of days sitting on his throne in all of his glory with all the crowds before him they can handle that he is the god he is the one god but yet there's this character this figure that's like a son of man that's coming in the clouds of heaven And the Lord, sitting on the throne, God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, gives him authority and glory and power. Well, God doesn't give authority, glory, and power to anyone. All authority, glory, and power belongs to him, right? So you can see why this is perplexing for the Jews. Who is this guy? Well, we know who this guy is. This guy is Jesus, right? It's the Son of God. This idea is, is mind-blowing for them. And we see this connection that John is making with Jesus here in this passage. It's interesting that Jesus quotes this very Daniel passage when he was in his trial, the night that he was crucified, the day that he was crucified, early in the morning, he's in his trial with the high priest and they're questioning him and they're bringing false witnesses and nothing would stick and Jesus is quiet and he's not saying a word and he's saying, these bozos, they can't get it right. They can't even say enough to, to lie well enough to accuse me. I must go to the cross. And so Jesus stands up 
And he says, I am the Son of Man, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And immediately the high priest rips his garments, and he declares Jesus a blasphemer and sends him to the cross. This passage. This passage. All right, now let's go back to the book of Revelation. That's the first that's the first witness. The second witness actually comes from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And Zechariah says that they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and the world will mourn for him. And we all know who the one whom they have pierced is. It's Jesus. John watched with his own eyes as they pierced his side with a lance. He quotes Zechariah as the second testimony. What is he doing? He's driving stakes into the Old Testament to anchor his vision in the truth of God's word that had already been proclaimed, that had already been declared. This is the message from the throne room of God. John described Jesus' life on the earth in his, first, in his gospel. He had the opportunity to describe what it was like to live and to walk with Jesus. And now he has the privilege of being able to describe what Jesus is like in his glorified state. And that's what we move to now. We're going to talk now about the appearance of the king. It begins now, John begins to tell his story. And he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience, endurance that was that, that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So John is on this little tiny island here in the Aegean Sea, just off the coast of Asia Minor, close to Ephesus. It's a prison island. And he's in bondage there. He's not allowed to leave the island. He's been exiled there as part of this persecution that has broken out from the Romans. And there he is worshiping, the Bible says, on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? It's Sunday, right? It's today. Today is the Lord's Day. And John is in the spirit on the Lord's Day when this vision takes place. I just want to make a quick aside because if we want to know Jesus, if we want to have intimate encounters with Jesus, if we want Jesus to reveal our future, the truth to us in our hearts, then we need to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We need to come to church. We need to be in worship together. We need to focus our hearts and our minds. Many times we come to church and we're in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day, but we're not really in the spirit. We're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. We're thinking about, is there a wild card game today? What time does that start? Right? We're thinking about all kinds of things, but we're not in the spirit. We're not focused on worshiping Jesus, focused on the Lord, because when we do that, that's when God will reveal himself to us. So we need to take time to focus on the Lord. It's not just on Sunday. It's when we're in our quiet time. It's when we're spending time with the Lord, quality time with the Lord. It's so important if we want to be led and directed by God. Now, this passage talks a lot about the seven churches 
um, and the lampstands and the stars and all kinds of interesting stuff that we're not going to talk about at all today. I'm going to leave that all for Aaron next week. Okay, so he's going to be talking to you about the seven churches and all of that. He'll dovetail into this passage, but I'm going to leave that aside because I really want to focus on this vision of Jesus today. It says someone like a son of man. There's that, that phrase, someone like a son of man. That is exactly the phrase that we saw in Daniel. This is Daniel 7 language. This is that guy that rides on the clouds. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. What does that mean? Well, that golden sash represents riches and power and glory, right? He is the king, and he's dressed as the king. And it says the hair on his head was white like wool, white as the snow, now, do you remember from the Daniel passage that that, was, that exact wording was used to describe the white hair of the one sitting on the throne? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus had prematurely aged since John saw him last. It doesn't mean that Jesus was old. It's a connection that's being made. And what's interesting is that the white hair that looked like wool was on the head of the one who sat on the throne on the Ancient of Days, God himself, God the Father. And now we see Jesus described just like his dad. He looks just like his dad. Makes sense. He's his son, okay? And, it is a, and it's an important theological point, isn't it? The equality between God the Father and God the Son, that they are both fully God, right? And we see that expressed in this symbolic and, and visionary kind of way. It's a, it's a beautiful picture for us as we think about it. And his eyes were like blazing fire. Can you imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus? The Bible says that, the eyes are the window to the soul. As we look into the eyes and you see the fire of Jesus' soul, that life, he is life. And his eyes reflect that intensity and that light and that life. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. I love this, right? I can't help it when we're talking about Daniel and you start talking about a, a furnace, I can't help but think about Daniel 3. You remember in the story in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew guys that were serving uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't bow down to his statue, and so he threw them into a fiery furnace. You remember that? And the king said, didn't we throw three guys into the furnace? But now I see a fourth guy. And he looks like the Son of God. Blazing like bronze in a furnace. This is the same guy. This is Jesus. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You ever stand next to a waterfall? Like a really big waterfall? And the rush of the sound, the intensity of that. That is the voice of Jesus Christ. And out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, I don't think Jesus is walking around with a sword sticking out of his mouth. Of course, it's symbolic 
And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, right? The word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He speaks the word of God. He is the very embodiment of the creative and powerful word of God. Wow. And then finally we have his face and his face is like the sun. It's like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. We have no sun today. But yesterday we did. It didn't seem to do much. But it was there. And it was bright. And it was brilliant. And it was shining in our face. And if you look at the sun, you can't look very long, right? You look at the sun, you glance, and you look away. Because it's so bright. It's so intense. And that is the face of Jesus. It's so bright and so intense that you have to look away because it's so powerful. It is, the sun is the source of life on this planet. And Jesus is the source of life and the source of light and the source of power. And all of that is reflected in his face. Wow, what a description of Jesus. Now let's talk about John's reaction. You got to love John's reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John just, he just keels over. He just falls over like, like a bowling pin that's been hit by a ball flying down the, down the floor. He collapses. Now, this is amazing to me because John is known as the beloved disciple. There is probably no one who has ever had a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, friendship, closeness, than John the Apostle. John the Apostle, by the end of the story, is laying his head on Jesus' breast. He's reclining on Jesus' chest. He's, he is intimately close with Jesus. They are close friends. John had seen Jesus die and had seen Jesus in his resurrected form. John had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Moses and Elijah. John had seen everything. But when John sees Jesus now in the throne room of God, when John sees Jesus in his full glorified state, he falls over like a felled tree. He's done. You see, this is the amazing thing about the incarnation. You see, God sent Jesus to the earth to live like a man, to be born at Christmas time in a manger and to grow up. And we have four gospels telling us about him. Why? So that we can relate to him. Because we can't relate to God. We can't relate to Jesus in his risen, glorified form. I mean, all we do is keep falling over. He picks us up, we fall over. He picks us up, we fall right? Because we can't, we can't abide in, that pre in his presence. It's just too powerful for us. That's the genius of the incarnation, so that we can know God, and we can know Jesus. Uh, we can know God through Jesus by relating to him as a human being, and understand him, and picture him in that way, because this is too awesome for us. It was too awesome even for John who was so close to Jesus. But I think we must keep this picture of Jesus in our minds because of his holiness and his power. Jesus is no longer the man who walked around in sandaled feet. 
on the dusty roads 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the exalted king seated in the throne room of God, ruling and sustaining the universe. That's who he is. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the final component of this vision is what Jesus says. Not what he looks like, but what he says. And that is equally important. So let's focus on what Jesus says to John. First, he says, do not be afraid. Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's going to happen as he's picking him up off the floor, right? Do not be afraid. How could he not be afraid? But what I want you to see in this statement is what Jesus is saying to John and he's saying to all of us. We don't need to be afraid even though Jesus is the glorified King of kings and Lord of lords, the sustainer and creator of the universe through the spoken word of God. We've been invited into relationship with him. Not situationship, but relationship. But relationship. We have been given a relationship with him. And that is amazing. And that is powerful. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus is approachable. He goes on to say, I am the first and I am the last. What is he saying? I am eternal. I am the eternal God. There is, I was there at the beginning and I will be there at the end. You can count on Jesus because he's always going to be there. He was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. Jesus isn't going anywhere. He is always there for us. He'll be with us for the duration. He goes on and he says, I am the living one for I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I am alive. I am the living one. I am victorious over death. Nothing is greater than me. Nothing can defeat me. So as we think about our own lives and what is happening in our lives, whether it be sickness or tragedy or rejection or oppression or pain, no matter what is going on in your life, Jesus is greater. Jesus has already been victorious over all of these things. And then he says, and I hold the keys of death and hell. I hold the keys. I brought some keys. I think the keys look like this. I think the keys look like this. They were big old nasty keys. And Jesus took them from hell. He took them from the hands of Satan. And Jesus now holds the keys. What's the significance of these keys? Well, keys mean power. Whoever holds the keys holds the power. Even my grandson, who's two and a half years old, knows that. He, he grabs these keys whenever he's at our house, and he puts them on his little, his little bicycle. He puts them on the handlebars, and he rides around. Whenever he can get a hand, his hand on the car keys, he wants to have the car keys. Why? Because he knows the keys mean power. Keys mean access. And that's what Jesus has. He has the keys. The keys of death and hell, all of the things that hold us in bondage, Jesus now has them. They no longer have control over us. They no longer are undefeatable. 
in our lives, our own desires, our addictions, our habits, our brokenness. Jesus holds the keys. Finally, Jesus commands John to write. And he says this, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. I think in many ways this is a, is a summary statement for the, the structure of the book of, of uh, Revelation. What you have seen, he's been in heaven and he's going to report to us over the next couple of chapters what he has seen. And then what is now, what is taking place in the seven churches that this book is immediately addressed to and reach to all of us today what is happening now. And then what will take place? All of the crazy stuff that's going to happen in the rest of the chapters that we're going to talk about over the next 12 weeks that are left of this series. That's what's happening in the future. Jesus is in control of all of these things, but I really want to focus on what this means when we think about Jesus himself and his power. It means that he's all-knowing. It means that he sees all the way to the end. And he is the God who wants to reveal to us the darkness of the future. He wants to shed light on it. It's interesting, uh, the, the well is beginning next Monday. And so I've been preparing for uh, the, the, the next lesson. We're working through Genesis. And there's a story in Genesis where Abraham receives three heavenly visitors. One of them, I think, is the Lord himself, Jesus, in his... Old Testament state, and he shows up there at Abraham's tent, and uh, afterwards they go and they look over the hill, over at the valley, over at the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord says this. He says, shall I not reveal what I am going to do to Abraham? And then he tells him that he's bringing judgment on these cities. And Abraham actually has a voice and he negotiates God down to 10 righteous people. If there are 10 righteous people, God, then will you spare the city? And God says, yes, because I'm a merciful God. But what's interesting about this is that God is the God who reveals what he's going to do to his people. And God reveals to us what he is going to do. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. It says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God is the God who makes known the end from the beginning. That's how we know it is God because no other God can do this. No other God knows the future because God wrote the book. He is sovereign over time and over the events of history. And God is in control. And so only he can reveal the future. But it's not only that he knows the future. It's not only that he controls it, but he desires to reveal it to us because we are his people. And Jesus knows the future and he reveals it to us. That's why the book of Revelations is written. So that we might know what's going to happen. So that the future isn't so shrouded in darkness. We know that God is in control and we can trust in him. And we can rest in him. The book of Revelation begins with Jesus. 
It begins with this glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And it's going to end with an equally glorious picture of Jesus Christ. Chapter 19, Jesus will be depicted riding on a white horse. He'll be wearing crowns on his head and he'll be bringing about the justice of God on a wicked world that has oppressed his people. We begin with Jesus and we end with Jesus. And my friends, in our lives, we begin with Jesus and we end with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is everything to us. And this is such an amazing picture of who he is. May it be burned into our hearts. Take the time, as I have done over the last couple of weeks, meditate on these verses, on who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son into the world to to reveal you. We thank you, Lord God, that he is no longer just a man on the earth, but he is the risen and powerful and exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. And he has invited us into his presence to know him and to love him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.